hate the rich Neolibs are a bitch Medicare for all Bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. How are you doing, Julia? Oh, boy. I'm... I, I, I think we're finally turning a corner into spring in New York. I don't know. It was snowing like two days ago. Yeah, that uh, was so weird. We did, we got snow like one time this whole winter. And then I know. Now and on, it w- was snowing in May. Uh, it's very it, strange. It was... Uh, not a welcome Mother's Day surprise uh, for us all, but yeah, I think I think it is starting to warm up. I'm feeling. I mean, w- not that we can go anywhere, but that's you know, it's uh, what we got to do. I I saw that, and this might not be true, but I did just see the L.A. Times posted that uh, the stay-at-home order for Los Angeles is going to be extended for another three months. Three months? Oh, wow. Three months. Um, and which is so much time. And uh, I, I'm, I think that Los Angeles has had considerably less cases than New York. Yes. And I cannot see... Cuomo doing the same. No, um, I, uh, yeah, I was looking at it this weekend, and New York has had like basically ten times as many cases as Los Angeles. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, Los Angeles was like, I, I don't don't totally quote me on this, but like I think that New York, New, LA has had maybe around like. Uh, 30 35,000 cases of the virus and New York has had uh like nearly 350,000. It was like pretty mm-hmm. much 10 times as many. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that makes in a certain way that makes sense in terms of like population density and like how like obviously LA is a densely populated city in yeah. and of itself, but there's not as many like certainly LA has a lot more like single family homes and and cars people try transport themselves by car yeah. versus public transportation um even though the subway notoriously uh perfect and um sterile uh. oh yeah <laughs> here's the thing that i've been feeling upset about so you know the uh cuomo has ordered the closure of the subways from 1 a.m. to uh, 5 a.m. every night for sanitation purposes, which is probably necessary for now. But I'd just be willing to, uh, you know, to to bet anything that 24 hour service in New York never comes back to the same degree after this. I think, you know. Yeah, I yeah. And that's such a. I. I. I hesitate to even speculate about what's going to be on the other side of this because I just can't, I don't know. I, obviously none of us know, but um, yeah, there's so many things that I feel like are, are never going to come back in the same, in the same way. Honestly, like if I have to go back to work, 
um, in my physical office in the next few months or so. Even though my office is in Manhattan, I'm like probably just going to walk to work, even though like it's an hour and a half walk. Like I'd, I think I'd rather do that than start taking the subway again. And it's so bizarre because obviously I haven't taken the subway in two months now, I think at least. Yeah. Uh, which is so bizarre. Yeah. I think the last time I did it was probably, uh, early March. Yeah. Uh, I think the last time I took the subway was early March. I I see myself biking around, hopefully. I don't know. One thing that's like, I mean, everything about this virus is uh, is a downer. But I have been reading some optimistic stuff about that actually rates of transmission uh, for the virus are, are just very low for outside. I mean, obviously, the research is still developing. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like there may be the possibility over time of people being able to spend time together if it's outside. Um, but at least going for a bike ride or taking a walk, uh, is, you know, maybe, uh, just definitely much lower risk than some other things. I definitely, yeah. have, I have, I have friends. I have one friend who is going to just stay inside until there's a vaccine like for she's just inside until there's a vaccine no grocery store no anything and uh how well no grocery store yeah i guess she's she's getting groceries delivered but i mean it's like we don't know if there's ever going to be a vaccine for this ever you know we don't know we hope so but i think i think there will be i have to i have to like i have to believe that i mean there's like every country in the world is working on this. It is this it's our modern space race. Yeah, I think that most people are pretty optimistic about it, but you know, one thing that the discussion I think misses a lot of the time of is like just what it will take to mass produce a vaccine. Um it's that is going to be a much longer part of the process and you know, one of the places where the vaccine may likely be produced uh, first is China. And Trump is like beefing with China right now. They're, t- you know, they're trying to um, the administration, both Trump and Pompeo and some other people that work for him have tried to promote this like uh, Chinese lab theory that the virus actually was created in this like, virology lab in Wuhan, which exists it's not like a bioweapons lab. It's a, it's just to study viruses, like, you know, basically so that we could do something about them when a situation comes like this. But um, yeah, the Chinese government has like basically, uh, you know, told Trump to go fuck himself on this and that people shouldn't believe him. But, you know, he's like picking beefs with uh, the country that we would very likely need to uh, collaborate with us in order to <laughs> vaccinate people in the u.s um and that's it's just really not a smart plan you know i don't know you know uh yeah not not the brightest minds in our country working on the solutions here uh which is tough yeah he's just so stupid and evil and uh they're coronavirus came to the the white house uh last week uh which you know i gotta be honest um maybe i'll get canceled for this but i mean i i loved to see it to be honest with yeah. you i love to see it it's, it's cancel cancel me too yeah, i loved it yeah uh but i pence's press secretary got it um and mm-hmm. uh you know it's uh i think didn't you say that 
did, did Stephen Miller also have it or something? Stephen Miller's wife got it. I'm not sure if he has it as well, but... Let's um, fucking hope, man. Let's hope. That guy... First of all, I mean, again, even just saying Stephen Miller's wife makes me sad because I can't believe that anyone on this earth agreed to marry him. Um, he is such a ghoul, and I wish him nothing but unhappiness and poor health. Yeah, I mean, I gotta be honest with you. When I saw that he got married, um, I I was very single and I was having really bad feelings about myself. But I think it's actually easier to find someone if you're a really terrible person. Um, I think that that makes it. I'm, I I feel like that makes it easier to find the person that you you, you want to be with just because, you know, there's no it's like self-selecting. Almost. Yeah. And there's no moral criteria, you know, like for yeah. most of us, like when we're you know searching for a partner it's like oh is this person a good person but you know it's like uh if you don't care at all about that then it it just really opens up your options you know that's true you know mitch mcconnell and elaine chow found each other so oh my god the idea of someone fucking mitch mcconnell just disgusting he i mean for i can't even i just can't i'm imagining i'm just uh the no, I, I've never thought of it until just now, and I still can't. He just seems like every part of his body is, like, recessive. Like, he's just a bunch of... Uh, I don't want to think about it. It's so gross. I know, uh, it's really gross. I shouldn't have done that to you. Life is hard enough right now. I really didn't yeah. need to, to throw that in there. But, now I'm going to be thinking about that. But, yeah, I mean, uh, Trump, like, them having coronavirus in the White House, um, you know, like, it's just... Uh, one thing about it is it definitely... Uh, it, it sort of undermines the case that they're trying to make, which is that, like, oh, it's safe to go back to work as long as there is, uh, you know, precautions and testing. They have that at the White House, you know? And uh, it's not safe there either. Well, you know what's so so interesting is that how obviously the federal government is totally, uh, you know, the executive branch is fucking this response up uh, mightily. But how is anyone supposed to listen to anything the president says with, uh, you know, authority and conviction when in every press conference he gives, every televised press conference he is not social distancing from anyone. He is never six feet apart from anyone. There are always a bunch of people crowded around him. I don't get it. And it's been like that since the beginning. It's like, you know, you see all pretty much all the other governors uh, who are who are giving daily addresses. It's usually just them. Yeah. Uh, I think, I don't know, I think maybe Trump's just like so insecure that he needs to have a wall of people behind him uh fl- flanking him on every side. Yeah, I mean it's like this uh it, it is um the like lack of masks and social distancing has become a dog whistle to the people that think that this is all overblown and a conspiracy. And obviously like, you know, for Trump, uh he's he has his reelection in mind, right? And mm. uh, I think you know it's just uh, 
I was reading some polls today and most people do know that he's doing a bad job with this. Um, and his his approval regarding his handling of this issue has gone down. So people people understand what's happening for the most part. But, you know, there is a, a segment of his base that, um, you know, thinks that this is all just uh, overblown. And there's a, there's a bunch of different conspiracies about it. Um, there was the, that documentary uh, documentary. I'm sorry I called it that but a uh, fake documentary Plandemic that came out. I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> I, I, I probably will, but I, I couldn't. Uh, I took mushrooms this weekend and I was thinking about watching it, but I was like, I don't need to put that in my head when I take mushrooms. Um, but uh, yeah, it's his strategy is like going back and forth between um, it is bad and blame China to it's not bad at all. Uh, we're all fine. You know, he canceled the coronavirus task force and then brought it back because i guess you know people called them on the phone and were like yeah we need this but uh oh what a fucking monster man i mean he's just like he's just bored of it like that's he's like he's just bored of it and doesn't want to deal with it anymore. He has never, I've, I maintain that he has never actually wanted to be president and he's like, I don't know. The fact is he could have, he really could have just put a few people on this and set it on autopilot, like a few very competent people on this, uh, this issue, but he doesn't even want to do that. I don't know. He's, there's almost no point in trying to track his thought process because it's, it is illogical and it's full of uh, spiders. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just a. I. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's really easy to. Uh, it. It's really easy to to feel like. Like even, um, you know. I mean, Democrats are fucking up in all kinds of ways, too, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But I mean, there is kind of unique to the Republican Party, this like contempt for science that Mm. is a very dangerous thing to have in charge right now. Yeah. (sighs) Well, let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about the the queen of shade, Nancy Pelosi, the queen of shade uh, herself. Also, I have really liked seeing what everyone's masks look like. Um, There were a bunch of pictures of Tim Kaine going around today that actually were really funny. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, he had a bandana on and he just and he looked so fucking mad. He just looked uh, and somebody was like, somebody was like, if Tim Kaine had dressed like this in 2016, Hillary wins 538 to zero. It really made me laugh. But yeah, he looked, uh, he has really become like, I mean, I know that Tim, Tim Kaine is like a neolib or whatever, but he, he, uh, I have enjoyed seeing his trajectory post 2016 as like becoming a little bit more like hard. Yeah. I mean, we can separate, you know, separate the art from the artist, right? The art from the artist. Absolutely. I I agree with that. Basically, um, the progressive caucus wanted, um, had some, uh, some demands for this bill, uh, which was, a you know, a 2000 a month, um, plus one K a month for each child for the duration of the crisis. And, uh, 
Pelosi shot it down. Um, what she wants, and there's another one-time payment of, of $1,200. Um, it's means-tested above $75,000, so you don't get it. It's really a bummer to not see um, Democrats sort of, like, take this opportunity to show that, hey, you know, we actually would do more for you than Republicans will. Well, okay, I, I will say in their defense that this this $3 trillion relief package is moving forward without uh, the GOP. The GOP is not even willing to, like, have talks about this. So I, you know, I will say of the, of the $3 trillion... Obviously, like, almost none of it is, like, direct payments, and it's, like, $1 trillion for state, local, and tribal governments, um, and it's, there are a lot of different earmarks, uh, $500 billion in direct flexible aid for state governments, $357 billion for local governments and counties, $25 billion in support for the postal service, a hundred billion for low income rent support, 75 billion for homeowner assistance, a hundred million for violence against women prevention and prosecution programs. Um, And it's not enough. I'll I'll say that even though it's $3 trillion, the direct aid portion of it is not enough. Yeah. I mean, Um, so it's it's $3 trillion and I'm sure it's like, it, it seems to be very comprehensive in like a lot of, uh, important areas it's just i how much individuals are going to how much relief individuals are going to see from this i think is is the issue yeah and um you know i mean it's it's definitely i mean with republicans it's a debate even to get testing you know and it is important to give like state and local governments some aid uh lots of aid actually you know i mean and you know for testing and tracing um you know here's the thing it's like well republicans will shoot a lot of this stuff down anyway you know Uh why not and i know the answer to my own question why not put forth a proposal um two thousand a month to every american um and american including everybody who lives here not just um citizens or anything like that um but you know like why not uh why not leave people with the impression that if they vote for democrats that they you know that they can expect that real help would be on the way you know even if it will get shot down i mean it's just and, and i think that the answer to that is that you know these people it's it's not just about republicans blocking it. It, it they actually are ideologically opposed to um helping people to that degree you know um mm. but it, but it's really frustrating because um having uh, the republican party in charge uh, is definitely an emergency it's definitely uh they're you know they're killing a lot of people trump is so dangerous and um you know the having i mean it's just these people have to get out of power and i think like not not being uh noticeably better in a way that like you know is is widely uh able to be perceived is 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 a dangerous bet right now you know i can't even imagine what it would look like if we had the murderers row of republicans yeah. that we did who gave us the trillion dollar uh 
uh, corporation and super rich tax cut. Yeah, I mean, there would be no testing, no tracing, nothing. I mean, and that's the thing. It's just like, you know, I think that like, um, I think that, you know, uh, and I'm talking about like people on, you know, Twitter or whatever, but like people can be kind of like apt to sort of like, collapse the distinction of you know like how how much worse the gop is on this issue specifically not on every single issue but i mean on on a lot of issues the parties are pretty much the same but in terms of like the uh coronavirus relief and um you know like uh, management i mean like the gop is just uniquely ghoulish but at the same Mm. time it's like how a lot of people see this um how a lot of people see this still is like, you know, the Democrats are the party that wants people to stay home. And how the fuck am I supposed to uh, afford to stay home? Right. So it's mm. like if, you know, if if, if they're going to be continuing to make the case that, um, you know, that the shutdowns need to last and that we shouldn't be uh, opening preliminarily, which they should. Right. Because you can't just like kill a bunch of people like there has to be like. You know, it it has to be really clear that um, that there would be like a lot of help for people to do that, like enough to actually mm. pay their bills. You know, uh, ah man, you know, <laughs> it's a uh, it's so wild to me that to- the uh, the mishandling of the largest international crisis. In almost a century, we hate to see it. <laughs> we do hate to see it. And I remember thinking of, I remember like hearing at the beginning of this, like, you know, people, you know, would say stuff about like Medicare for all, like, oh, well, you know, uh, they'll have to do something for people. Same thing with rent relief, you know, oh, well, like, they'll, they will, there will have to be something, you know. And mm. I was, I'm kind of a pessimistic person. So I was like, the fact that there will have to be doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, mean that there will be. Um, and yeah. I hate being right about that. I would love to be uh, proved wrong. But in fact, um, it's not going very well. <laughs> it's not going well. The only thing that gives me it, like, I think that we could we could come out on the other side of this with like a newly invigorated labor movement. Yeah, uh, because uh I mean, you saw even, I think, like, one of the VPs of Amazon just stepped down, like, in protest, like, quit in protest because all, everyone uh, in the warehouses who has tried to, or anyone at Amazon who has tried to organize uh, gets fired, like, immediately. And, yeah, oh, uh, great piece on on 60 Minutes this week about Amazon, Leslie Stahl really uh, put the screws to one of their their spokespeople. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think that we have, because, you know, the most quote-unquote essential workers are ones who, like, the most badly need the protections that a union could offer. Yeah, yeah, I mean... If you haven't checked out our uh, our episode on Jeff Bezos, please do. But I mean, you know, just so ghoulish how they're treating their workers right now, and also just you know such um, they've just really gone above and beyond to make sure that they're doing everything that they possibly can to prevent people 
from unionizing. Uh, mm. We hate to see it. Yeah, we hate to see it. But luckily, <laughs> there are people out there in Amazon's own backyard. Yes, uh, trying to make a difference. Like as we mentioned, our girl Pramila Jayapal. Yeah, and uh, and today's guest. Yeah, we are very excited. We had such a good conversation with her, Rebecca Parson from Washington. Uh, she's Washington running for Congress. Sixth District. We are so lucky, the people that we get to talk to uh, on this show. There are so many amazing people running for Congress, and it just really... Uh, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It gives me hope yeah. uh, that there are people who who are are walking the walk and doing the work trying to trying to make a change in this very fucked up time <laughs> yeah and i'm uh you know i'm i just got these new kittens and i'm trying to post a lot of pictures of them on my social media so oh boy yeah we didn't even touch on that that kate got new kittens and they are uh perfect and you must so you simply must follow her on all social media platforms if you do not already because uh the content is spectacular yes um all right well you know let's let's wrap it up there um but this is a really great interview we touched on a a lot of topics uh including uh you know political dynasties that we would fuck or not so (laughs) give it a list uh sorry i'm talking like that it's terrible um all right all right (laughs) just listen to reply guys well, hello and uh, welcome back to Reply, guys. We're here with Rebecca Parson, who is running for Congress in Washington 6. And we were just having a lively discussion uh, before we started recording about uh, the trends of uh, cool parents with neolib kids. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a so subject sad. that we've, we've discussed this a lot on the show. But um, yeah, we were we were just talking about Cuomo's dad, you know, as, as you know, Julia and I, you know, have long taken a stand against uh wanting to fuck andrew cuomo yeah uh, he is uh he is not our he is not our crisis daddy okay <laughs> but oh that was so disgusting when that happened daddy cuomo i know then you didn't hurl racial epithets at anybody i mean good job Good job. But here's my real question to you, Julia. I don't really actually know much about Cuomo's dad. Uh, Was, you know, if he was, um, I know he was more progressive than Cuomo, but I I haven't actually uh, looked into him that much. Uh, Is he, was he progressive enough that in his heyday, you would have hooked up with him? (laughs) (laughs) I actually, so uh, Mario Cuomo is... I actually don't know too much about his policies. Um, he was he held a lot of of positions in the New York State governor. I think he was uh, the New York State government rather. He was lieutenant governor, governor, and I think he was the the Secretary of State of New York. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing about him is I'm. He, being more progressive than our current governor Andrew Cuomo is quite a low bar to clear. So, uh, yeah, and also, I mean, I think he, yeah, when was he? Yeah, he was governor in the eighties and nineties. He was governor for a long time. Wow. Also, we've had that. That kind of like goes to another issues we've had all these like deep nepotism. 
governorships. We've had the dailies in the, yeah yeah in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we got to get rid of nepotism. It's a disease, and um, I say that as you know, uh, I, I come from Kennedy country, so I uh, yeah I know that I know that well. Here's my favorite political uh, nepotism that wasn't. Um, Levi Sanders, Bernie Sanders' son, ran for office, and Bernie did not endorse him. I and loved that. Do yes. son. Yes. So and, uh, funny. I think that they have... I mean, I think that they have a, a... I don't want to say they have a strained relationship. It seems like they have an okay relationship. Is he like a libertarian? I can kind of see something like that happening for him. Um, I don't think he's a libertarian. I don't know what his politics are. Um, Levi Sanders is not his father. He keeps telling that to voters. Um, yeah, he's definitely, it's weird because it's like, he's also old. People keep talking about like Bernie's like illegitimate son, but it's like, he's like sixties or something. (laughs) Um, no, I guess he's like 50 now. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Um, I guess, uh, you know, he was like for single payer health care, $15 uh, minimum wage and tuition free public college. Um, and, uh, you know, was also, uh, you know, not um, it, taking corporate PAC money or anything like that. But for some then reason, why wouldn't Bernie endorse him? That's so funny. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe it's maybe it is just like a familial strife or he just doesn't believe in nepotism. Yeah. Um, Very woke. <laughs> And, uh, well, this is what Bernie said about it. He said, uh, Levi has spent his life in service to low-income and working families, and I am very proud of all that he has done. Uh, in our family, however, we do not believe in dynastic politics. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I uh, love that. Yeah, but I just, like, I don't know. I just, uh, <laughs> I like to imagine that it was, like, a real issue between them. I'm not really sure it was. <laughs> Um, Thanksgiving dinner. Well, yeah. speaking of like things going, I mean, you. So, Julia, you're from Massachusetts. Yeah. So, what's up with the? Why is the Kennedy guy challenging Markey? Oh boy, isn't that? Is he the only last Kennedy? Or any other Kennedys? I mean, oh, there's, there. I don't know how many are still in office, but yeah, this is another uh, kind of recurring conversation that we have. Um, Joe Kennedy the third is primary is trying to primary Ed Markey uh, from the center um, or from from his right if you if you will and why would um, you bother running like I'm just so um, fired up about you know per, you know defeating progressive politics that I'm gonna run against somebody to like pull things back and have less change like how could yeah. you Ed Markey uh, is the Senate, the Senate author of the Green New Deal, um, and he is, yeah, one of the most progressive senators that we have, definitely. And but also, I just saw um, a report that said that he is now one of he is one of the most vulnerable seats because of this primary challenge. And my parents and like all my family still lives in Massachusetts and they say they are constantly seeing Kennedy ads on TV because obviously he has a bottomless pit of money. And the name. And the name, which does unfortunately carry a lot of currency, uh, even though there, there are a lot of people who 
are kind of like sick of the dynastic chokehold that the Kennedys have on on Massachusetts. And I think that part of the issue here is that Joe Kennedy, like a lot of the Kennedys, sees a Senate seat in Massachusetts as like their birthright. Yeah. Um, I also feel like dynastic chokehold sounds like an excellent prestige drama. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. that I that I executive produce. Yeah, just like we cannot have another Kennedy in office. You know? <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he's. Uh, I'm no. I'm no fan of of Joe Kennedy the uh, third. Yeah. This is a this is an Ed Markey podcast all the way. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's really uh, we got to get rid of that sort of. I mean, but. American politics and every kind of like major industry in America is like full of nepotism and it's full of these legacy families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of like what other like dynasty families there are. I mean, obviously, uh, the Bushes, the Clintons, the Romneys. Yeah. I mean, are, no, but is there any, yeah, I, are there uh, are there other Obamas that are going to go into politics? I don't know. I cannot. I can't imagine that Sasha and Malia would see the what her her father had to what their father had to endure and want in on that. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's kind of weird because like uh, it is liberals keep coming up with the idea of like drafting Michelle Obama like to be mm. Biden's VP all the time or running for president liberals are really obsessed with yeah. uh, how Michelle Obama will save us but to my knowledge she has expressed no interest in no. holding public office whatsoever no <laughs> I think um. she would I, I, I think she actually if she I mean if she ever wanted this position in like if the Democrats ever uh get control of the white house again i think uh i think she would actually make a very fine uh un secretary but that's just that's just my my personal dream for her but i i also would i mean she's i think she's very smart for wanting nothing to she didn't even want anything to do with politics when he was running in the first like she didn't want to be like a politician's wife I don't really know much about her. But I've read an anecdote that she yeah didn't want him to run for president, and then they made a deal that she would let him if he quit smoking. Yeah, <laughs> which is good. That's man, marriage is full of compromise. Oh uh, my god! Did, I Julia, did you know this was Rachel was uh, telling me that uh, yeah after um, you know after uh, Republicans were trying to uh, impeach Bill Clinton for the Monica Lewinsky stuff, which was uh, sexual harassment, but it was not because they cared about women or anything like that. Um, so I guess uh, Hillary Clinton would not talk to Bill Clinton um, until, uh, yeah, until he, what, what did he do? He had to bomb some country in order to get, she, she was like, I'm not talking to you again unless you bomb this country. And then he did it. <laughs> Uh, it was for a long time. It was like six months or something. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I, I forgot which country it was, but uh, yeah, that's... I mean, man, you know, 
Just wow. You're not, you're not wow. out of the doghouse until you do more U.S. imperialism. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and on that note, I just want to say a belated happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there in America. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I became happy. a mo- mother yesterday. Oh, yeah. Kate got, Kate got some new kittens. Yes, um, they're really small. And so they, because two, she got two. Um, yeah, and and you know, like all all children of uh, progressive leftist parents, uh, Kate has said that her her children will be neoliberals. So yes. <laughs> neolib kittens. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, I am so excited to talk to you about uh, about your campaign and about. Uh, your district. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your district to, to get started? Yeah, so the Washington 6th Congressional District includes Tacoma, where I live, which is about when there's not traffic, 40 minutes south of Seattle. And then it also includes, there's a lot of, for those who don't know, the Puget Sound has like a, a million peninsulas um, because and islands because there's lots of little ins and outs and inlands and stuff. So it includes the Kitsap Peninsula and then the Olympic Peninsula. And the Olympic Peninsula, if you picture, is the northwestern most tip of the lower 48 states. Um, and it has a national park and a national forest in it. It's absolutely beautiful. If you think of like a Pacific Northwest screensaver or something, that would be the Olympic Peninsula. Um, really beautiful. And uh, it's a working class district, even though we have a lot of different areas, you know, like Tacoma's urban and then we've got small towns, rural, national park. Um, it's what it has in common is that it's working class. So, you know, even though we're close to Seattle, we don't have um, a big tech company like Amazon or Microsoft. You know, Tacoma has one of the largest uh, ports in North America and takes in shipping from China and all over the world. And then on the Olympic Peninsula, there was a big timber industry. And so if you think of what happened in Appalachia and you just swap out you know, like coal and timber, it's a very similar story. <laughs> um, and so a lot of economic devastation there and companies that came in and just extracted all the old growth, beautiful, beautiful old growth trees um, that they were legally allowed to. Kept the land for very low taxes and left, and then no jobs came to replace them. And it really is kind of feudalistic in a lot of ways. Uh, Like on the Olympic Peninsula, a lot of people hunt and fish and they eat what they uh, hunt and fish. And so they would go on the land, Weyerhaeuser is a big timber company. You know, they would go um, hunt and fish on those lands and Weyerhaeuser, which has acres and acres of land. It's not barely paying any taxes on. It's not using because it's regrowing the trees so that it can take them down again. Um, they put up fences so that people couldn't get on, so onto the land. So it is literally like uh, the royal um, po- hunting grounds, um, fencing out the poachers and like the peasantry. I mean, it's very feudalistic in a lot of ways. And something else that's really interesting about this district is that it has a history of leftist organizing. Oh, cool. Yeah. There were communists on the Olympic Peninsula. There was an Aberdeen Socialist Club 100 years ago that there are pictures of. Um, There's three DSA chapters in the district. So it's a really interesting district. And, you know, not to make this about me, but there's literally nothing (laughs) I find uh, more attractive other than uh, a man in a flannel uh, (laughs) with a a healthy amount of facial hair who does socialist organizing. So I'm giving a lot of consideration to moving here now that you've described this place. Yeah, Yeah, it describes two out of three men here. So Wow. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Googling some Zillow homes in Washington 6th District right now. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, your your platform, uh, you know, is looking at it, and um, you know, it's it's really comprehensive, uh, and you know, a lot of these issues that you have um, uh, that you're mentioning uh, are issues that a lot of folks that we talked we've talked to a lot of folks who are also supporting these issues. For example, uh, you're a huge advocate of uh, Medicare for all. Um, tuition-free public college. Um, I I wanted to talk to you about a couple of the issues that I haven't seen anyone else mention so far. Let's talk for a second about uh, your women's rights platform. Um, you specifically include in here trans rights, which I think is awesome. Um, I think it's I think it's awesome both because I support trans rights and I, I also think that uh, there was a while there when people were really not talking about trans rights as an issue that leftists should care about, which I thought was mm-hmm. ridiculous, um, especially after 2016. There were people being like, you know, um, socialists should get away from this like trans stuff like it was some sort of like fringe identity issue distraction, yeah. which I thought was horrible. And, you know, yeah. um, I was wondering if you could speak to um what your platform is and also um, how leftists should be thinking about trans rights and LGBT rights in general. Yeah, definitely. And I want to update the site because I think um, I want to have a separate reproductive rights platform uh, because somebody pointed out to me that that doesn't necessarily belong like only under women's rights. So I need to switch that out. But yeah, um, trans rights are uh, really important to me, like rights for transgender people. Um, you know, I, I met with a gay straight alliance, like a, a, the Rainbow Club at a small community college on the Olympic Peninsula, and they have um, like seven people in their club and they're the largest, you know, gay group of any kind in their town. Um, and uh, several of the members of this student group are trans and they described to me, you know, uh, how important healthcare is as a trans issue and Paige um, quite... I think who's running for Oregon State Legislature. Yeah, um, she's spoken about trans rights and Medicare for all is a trans rights issue. Um, and I spoke with the students told me about that as well, because both from the perspective of getting a gender affirmation surgery, that's important. Um, a lot of people can't afford it. Uh, but then also getting any type of health care. Um, you know, these students described to me how they would go. And I uh, would be like, are you on birth? You know, get the questions like, is there a chance you're pregnant? Are you on birth control? Whatever. And they would say, uh, no, I'm trans. And then the person would just shut down. Oh, and just like walk out of the room. I mean, Ugh. for some, for trans people in many areas, they just can't even get, maybe they have like a persistent headache and they go to the doctor for it. It has, it's not related to being trans, but due to being trans, they're discriminated against. And a big part of that is, you know, these private hospitals and also hospitals that are run by religious groups, um, especially um, Catholic ones. Um, I'm Catholic. I I don't think that uh, like homeless shelters and medical institutions should be run by the Catholic church. Um, I think that we need to have a, public and publicly owned hospitals where there's a standard of um, respect for all people and different sexualities, gender orientations, gender identities. So that's a big issue, um, trans rights in terms of healthcare. Um, Also just safety, Um, also in terms of jobs, like how should leftists think about uh, trans rights? You know, on the left, especially, you know, socialists, DSA members talk about class issues. Well, many uh, trans people 
are in lower paying jobs and make less money over the course of their lives. And so trans rights is also a class issue, if you think about it that way. So for like these students I spoke with who live in a small town on the Olympic Peninsula, which is hours away from, it's very remote, it's hours away from Seattle, from Tacoma, um, essentially like on the edge of a national forest. Where do they go if they want like good career prospects and they want to make a solid living? Because on the Olympic Peninsula, there are no jobs since the timber industry collapsed. So that's a class issue. Like if you're a trans person and you want to live in a small town or rural area where you grew up, but you have to move, uh, you know, that's, that's an issue for you. Um, so it, it definitely, you know, I think it needs to be discussed more on the left, and I'm glad that it is starting to be. Yeah, I just thought that was so asinine after 2016. There was just a minute when Republicans, centrists, and leftists all seemed to really uh, unite in uh, deciding that trans issues uh, were either... I mean, I guess Republicans are, were overtly hostile to trans rights, but, you know, centrists and leftists seem to both come to the conclusion that, like, yeah, we can't focus on this. Um, this was why we lost or something. Mm. And it was just so disgusting to me. You know, it's like. Yeah, we can't throw people under the bus. Like, it's just it's not acceptable. And I think also people need to be think about it a little more critically. Like, uh, you know, I'm I'm queer. I grew up in the closet. I grew up with the majority of the American public not believing in gay rights. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been great to see that change, uh, you know, having gay marriage. You know, I ha was married to a woman. I mean, yes, these things are important, but let's also think about it. Like, why are all these things happening? Uh, like, you know, the human rights campaign is a very you know, white, upper-class centric organization. And that's how the LGBTQ rights movement has been. But if you're trans or you're a person of color, or you don't work for a software company or startup or ride, you know, scooters around like this asshole in uh, Seattle who won, who just automatically got the support of a lot of uh, gay rights organizations, but he's a total centrist and a total panderer. Like we need to think of why are trans people the first ones to be thrown under the bus? Well, it's because they uh, don't, often fit into that like we're gonna have two people get married and you know one's the, like more of the breadwinner that kind of thing like it there's something uh challenging to people on you know the right center a lot of people about like changing your gender uh or what uh i'm probably not phrasing it right but like what they see as changing their gender it's challenging and so we need to think about that and not throw people under the bus because they don't fit this hrc model of what um lgbt people are supposed to be yeah, yeah, I th yeah, that's I think that's a really astute point and it kind of has tracked that way in every social movement in this country's history. It's like the people with the most privilege in whatever um whatever group is fighting for liberation are the ones who get the loudest voice and the kind of the biggest seat at the table, I guess, uh and in terms of you know, we've talked about this before, is that um, in the, you know, the LGBT rights movement that was white, cis, gay men um, who, you know, and a lot of people have said, even though uh, marriage equality is like, sh should have passed a long time ago and, um, you know, is kind of a, a no brainer at, at this point. It's like, when you think about the two, the two tenants of, um, the last 25 years, it's, 
LGBT folks serving in the military and marriage equality are both kind of like almost inherently more like conservative uh, ends. Yeah. And I remember when I was in college and like involved with different types of activism and, you know, leftists on campus, like the discussion there was, you know, why is marriage equality the focus? Like, why should, why should the progress be being more like, um, you know, upper class straight people? Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you want to be like that, fine. Yeah, you should. I, I was married to a woman. Great. But like, not everybody wants to have that life. And Masha Gessen had a piece in The New Yorker about it that was interesting about like, why some gay people um, aren't big fans of Pete Buttigieg. And it's like, it's because he's like a, um, you know, just such a white bread, like, you know, straight, acceptable gay guy. Yeah, he was doing a, I mean, respectability politics was like his entire thing. Like, you know, just I'm Christian and uh, I'm a, you know, a veteran. And like there was, he was just, his whole case felt very, uh, unfortunately, I don't know, I'm probably being problematic, but it felt very 90s to me. Like the idea <laughs> that like, there's, you know, literally nothing that is different about me um, as uh, a gay person. I am uh, straight in every way, except for this husband guy, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that that is kind of, uh, to your point, the like the HRC's like the penultimate HRC approved candidate would be someone like Pete Buttigieg, um, like an upper middle class married Christian veteran. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, what about what about everybody else? And so I just it it, it was I really didn't I you know totally agree. I didn't like seeing that after the election. Oh, did we lose because you're focusing too much focusing too much on identity politics? Like, look, a trans person not dying because they're trans is not an identity politics issue. You assholes. No, like it's their life and death. Like, how dare yeah. you? I just. Uh, yeah, also, I mean, it's like so, so much of the reason that Trump won is because of white identity politics. Yeah. Like no one talks about like the flip side of that. So much of what Fox News and the conservative uh, uh, media sphere sells is white identity politics. It's just dressed up in like freedom. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, conservatives in this country are uh, into white identity politics and liberals. It seems like it's kind of uh, whenever it, you know, sort of serves what they're trying to do and then not when it, you know, they think it's antithetical to their aims. I know um, you're, you identify as a a feminist, right? I feel like I've seen that from you on Twitter. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One, one issue that has come up lately that I have uh, seen you talking about is um, the fact that um, Biden is now accused of sexual assault and there's a bunch of kind of feminist progressive candidates that have been talking about this, whereas kind of the sort of mainstream, um, like women keep getting asked about this in general, but you know, the sort of like, um, liberal women who hold office already, the line seems to be, um, I believe Biden, what is it like for you to sort of go against what you're supposed to be saying about that? Uh, it, it was difficult. And I actually, I've called for Biden to withdraw from the race and for any other candidate to restart their campaign. 
Um, not just because I'm a Bernie bro, but uh, any other candidate would be better. Anybody who doesn't have, you know, sexual assault allegations and uh, you know, sexual assault and, and harassment allegations against them. And I've gotten some blowback and they're, you know, Biden trolls in my tweets now, but you know, everything I do, I could pick, put a picture of my dog and they would have some troll about Biden now, but that's fine. Um, and I think it's just been so disappointing to see the Democratic establishment and even ostensibly progressive uh, people in positions of power uh, not calling out Biden and just towing the party line. It's disgusting. Like, Me Too should not be partisan. And uh, it's, yes, the Republicans are pouncing on it, um, but uh, that doesn't change the fact that it's wrong that Democrats trashing me too is wrong. I saw this article yesterday that uh, they polled people about if uh, somebody thought uh, like they polled people about if they, if they thought that sexual assault was uh, disqualifying for the office of the presidency. And then they um, so, sometimes in the poll, they asked first about Biden and sometimes in the poll, they asked uh, about Trump because he's been accused of sexual assault by like 17 people. And what they found in this poll was that uh, actually Democrats have moved by like 20 percentage points to thinking that sexual assault is not disqualifying even for Trump, that this whole thing has kind of shifted the Overton window in a way that now this is uh, it's not even disqualifying in the case of Trump, which is so weird to me, you know, I hadn't seen that. I don't I don't get that. Yeah. Like this, a lot of, you know, Democratic politics is becoming so retrograde and you know, now we're all scared of Russia and doing McCarthyism on that. Like, how dare you? You know, if you speak out against Biden, you're obviously a Russian troll paid by Putin himself. And uh, like, it's just why is all this sliding back happening? It's so disappointing. I also think it's uh, it's frustrating that I consistently see the a lot of female members of Congress asked to comment, to make an official statement about Biden. And we really don't see, you know, your Chuck Schumer's and, or, you know, any of the high ranking, uh, male members of the house to ask to make the same sorts of, of statements regarding it. And this is exactly how it happened at the beginning of the me too movement. Um, where basically like every female co-star of a man who was accused of sexual misconduct was asked, every woman who has ever worked with him was asked to make a statement about it. Um, and I don't know, I, in that way, I'm frustrated by that in, if only because I just feel like there is no situation in which the, Western media will not make a woman answer for a man's misdeeds. Although I do want to say that, yes, I, I agree with your point completely. Uh, although I do want to say that Bernie Sanders was asked about it, and in my opinion, really fucked it up. So. Oh, I didn't. I didn't even see. I didn't see that he. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, he, was, he asked. was asked about it, and I mean, I'm being a little reductive about his statement, but you know, basically, you know that he uh, believes Joe Biden. And, you know, I mean, it's like, the thing is, is like, I'm not saying that, you know, I think that there's a way to take this seriously and, and not be like a pro Trump about it or something, you know, like there's a, yeah. Yeah, I don't know the, that, that binary just feels so completely fake to me. Um, 
Yeah, it really is. You know, Biden should drop out because of this and because it makes him weaker against Trump. You know, we saw that with stuff he would accuse Hillary Clinton of during the last election with stuff he did. But somehow, you know, he has like he's the hypocrisy Teflon president. It doesn't affect him. And so he'll be able to do that against Biden. It won't matter. Like he'll be able to just go on the attack against him. And for some reason, the hypocrisy won't stick. And it's, you know, people this argument that like saying anything against biden is an argument for trump no i don't want trump to win that's why biden should withdraw and somebody else should run because they'll be stronger somebody who doesn't have these weaknesses in common with trump yeah i mean i i completely agree and uh it also got me thinking you know just kind of like um i don't know in in the past like year or two uh i really felt i i feel like this is not like the the first time that sort of like leftist feminists and liberal feminists have have had some um some daylight in between you know the way that we're seeing things and you know you identify as a feminist i'm wondering like you know what are the things in your platform um that your feminism has informed and in what way is it different to you than you know maybe um the the more liberal feminism that is you know kind of uh promoted more often by the Democratic Party? Yeah, I think one way it's different is that I look at universal programs uh, and how they are, you know, how I look at them as a feminist. They are women's rights issues. So, for example, when Social Security was enacted, it was a huge uh, equalizer for a lot of women. It lifted so many women. It lifted a lot of millions of seniors out of poverty but it also helped a lot of women. And, um, but at the same time, you know, women are 80% more likely than men to be poor uh, in their senior years. And so I look at that like, okay, we need to not only protect social security, but expand it. That's a feminist issue. Um, you know, Medicare for all, everybody having healthcare without co-pays, deductibles or, or premiums, you know, and women, you know, that would result in women not having to pay more for care. That's a feminist issue. And so I really look at these things in terms of that. Like, for example, part of the Green New Deal is a federal jobs guarantee. So everybody who wants a job has one and it's a good family wage union job. Well, if a lot more parents are working, because, you know, right now the case is that for some families, uh, one of the parents has to stay home because it just doesn't make financial sense for them to work, you know, like 95% of their paycheck would be taken up with childcare costs. So they basically break even. Well, okay, if we have a federal jobs guarantee, a lot more parents are working, then we need universal free childcare. That's also a feminist issue because then women who want to and were previously unable to can continue to pursue their careers. Um, there are particular areas where it's not about universal programs for me, like Ayanna Presley has a bill called the Mamas Act, and it's about um, reducing maternal mortality among African-American women. Um, that's something I don't see uh, talked about enough among, I think, liberals or the center is, uh, you know, feminism. It tends to be just looked at through this white lens. And obviously, mm. like feminism in this country has a racist history. And so I don't see enough emphasis on, okay, yes, even if we have Medicare for all, and that's a universal thing and it helps all women, creates greater quality. At the same time, African-American women are starting at a lower level because they have higher maternal mortality. So if you just increase it for everyone, you know, African-American women are still at a, from a relative point of view at a more disadvantaged point than white women. So there need to be targeted programs for them. 
Um, so that's kind of what I see is like the combination of universal plus acknowledging uh, with specific targeted programs how to fix problems. Completely. It's uh, particularly for black women, the, the maternal mortality rate and the infant mortality rate is... I don't know how it's how we're not talking about it like every day because it's 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 absolutely it's just inexcusable that we have that we have the same rates of maternal mortality uh, for black women in this country. We have higher rates of maternal mortality than hundreds of other like. I just never want to hear ever again that kind of proselytizing about like American exceptional American exceptionalism and how we're like the greatest country in the world because or how we're the wealthiest country in the world. We have like eight wealthy people who live here and they really drag the the average up um because we're not doing the absolute bare minimum for so many people in this country, uh, yeah. particularly black mothers. Yeah. And, and we're seeing a real repeat of, uh, the, I, I mean, essentially, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarity with COVID-19. I mean, the mortality rates for black people are, are so much higher than they are for white people, both mm -hmm. because, you know, of exposure and also maybe because of, um, you know, other, other things um, in the medical system, everything ranging from people not having uh, access to care or, um, you know, not being believed when they go to the doctor uh, about, you know, their symptoms. I mean, it's just um, I, I think that that uh, that undertone has been ever present in the reopening debates because it's like, you know, it's the, the largely white, rich politicians who are talking about the need to reopen um, for the most part, are, are very distanced from the actual consequences of what that would be. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen, it, it, so in these companies where people have gone on strike, I, I, I've seen articles about this, you know, the workers go on strike and the company's like, okay, and they fire them all and they use prison labor instead. And who makes up that prison labor? Um, primarily people of color. Um, so it, you really see how, you know, different groups of people are just pitted against each other. And yeah, these rich white politicians talking about sending people back to work is just uh, unbelievable. You know, basically just putting people sacrificial lambs on the altar of profit is uh, disgusting. It is disgusting. Um, and, you know, your district, does your district include Amazon or is that just next door? That's next door. Yeah, we don't have um, the big tech companies like that. And so we have, you know, primarily the jobs people are in are like healthcare workers, uh, service industry, various types of, you know, professionals, you know, like lawyers, accountants, um, then a few timber jobs left on the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, we also have the ILWU here, the Long Firmans Union, because uh, of the Port of Tacoma. Um, and yeah, but we don't have those $300,000 jobs. There's not a lot of that here. Yeah, I was just, I was thinking about it because, I mean, um, in terms of those companies, one of the uh, 
few times uh, Amazon has been successfully challenged, um, you know, other than uh, Bernie Sanders, um, you know, promoting a, a $15 wage uh, as minimum at Amazon, like, you know, seeing uh, Shama Sawant um, defeat them in Seattle right nearby uh, was really incredible. And, you know, I was just kind of wondering, like, uh, for politicians in, in Washington, if you were elected, is there anything that, you, you know, in particular um, that you would support, um, you know, to kind of rein in or nationalize Amazon or better uh, protections for workers? Better protections for workers. Also, I think we need to have worker co-determination on board. So we need to have 45% of the board of companies be made up of workers. Hell yeah. Yeah, break up these huge companies. Uh, put in place a lot more laws, you know, protecting unions so unions can expand and also the, the unorganized can be organized into unions, make the conditions easier for labor organizers. And um, yeah, I mean, Shama Swant's been a huge inspiration and Amazon tried to basically enact a total corporate takeover of the Seattle City Council and they were defeated. <laughs> so it didn't work. It shows that sometimes, you know, you can beat this giant corporate power and money. Yeah, it was definitely really inspiring to see that, you know, even if it's not common um, and it's not likely it can be done. Um, I do have a question. Uh, and Julia, you were in mind when I thought about this question. Um, so you support UBI. You support $2,000 a month for uh, every person until um, the COVID-19 crisis is over. But you also uh, permanently, you support like a permanent universal basic income. And, you know, Julia and I, we love to drag Andrew Yang because we think that <laughs> his version of UBI is just, you know, it's a, just kind of a, a libertarian ploy, right? That actually gives companies more power. Um, in what way is the UBI that you support different than what Yang had on offer, if so? Well, first of all, I don't think, you know, part of his, uh, you know, I've read his policy on the site, it was uh, trying, was taking away from social security benefits. And it was like, you either get this or this and trying to, I don't know, he put it in the terms of like consolidating programs for greater efficiency, which is mm -hmm. libertarian code for just cutting social programs. All, all not, yeah, not just social security, like basically any form of government assistance, you would have to choose between, I mean, including things like food stamps. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And it also, uh, you know, for people on disability, for example, uh, they're not allowed to make above a certain amount of income or their benefits are gone. So mm -hmm. let's say that you're getting, you know, $1,000 a month in, in disability, uh, and then suddenly you're bumped up to $2,000 in income, then they'll say, uh, because of the UBI, then they'll say, okay, all your benefits are gone, you know, you don't get healthcare, uh, Medicaid anymore. But the person's disability is so expensive to take care of, they now cannot afford to take care of themselves. You know, they can't buy a wheelchair anymore. They can't have in-home health aids. Like, it has to be very carefully thought of, but, um, planned and thought about. And so the, I started to support it because of coronavirus and seeing, you know, people just need cash. They need the money in their bank accounts to pay the bills. And some form of UBI should continue beyond it. Um, but it needs to be done carefully so that social programs are not um, cut at all. Um, people are not bumped off of any programs that they're on. Um, but it could be useful in terms of things like, you know, right now, a lot of especially women are in caretaking jobs. 
where um, they are just totally unpaid. We don't call it a job, but it is. Like they take care of their elderly parents for 20 years and they don't get paid for it. And then because they're not paying into social security, they don't get social security when they're senior. And then that results in something like a woman who I canvassed in Tacoma before the pandemic, she receives $700 a month to live on. Um, her rent is $600 and she gets food stamps. So she has $100 to pay for everything she needs in her life except for rent and food. And her food stamps probably aren't even that much. So it's women, it's situations like that. I can see UBI being something to fill in the gap. But one thing especially I don't like about Yang's plan is like $1,000 a month isn't enough to live on. So it's like you're going to cut all these programs and give people $1,000 a month. Like that's people can't live on, on that. So it's something that I see as kind of like um, the Green New Deal, which is a statement of principles. And when it's enacted, it'll have to be a bunch of very specific bills. I see the UBI as like, for me, as a statement of principle and how the specifics is inter are implemented. That's really going to be very, very important. Is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you wanted to say? Um, pro probably just briefly, people um, like take check out my housing policy. I'm really excited about it. It's the homes guarantee. Yeah. Um, housing is something I'm really passionate about, especially national rent control. Um, and so check it out. I have also, it's not on my site, but if you want it, just um, email the campaign or DM me on Twitter. And I have like a long Google doc that goes into a lot more detail. I just love housing policy. Me um, too. So, yeah. <laughs> That's um, one thing to check out. Yeah. the I, I saw that on your website. It's really exciting to see more and more people lining up bet behind uh, an expanded version of rent control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you both for having me on. Um, it's exciting. So thank you for coming on the show. Where can our listeners find you? What are your, your social media handles? Oh, yeah, thank you. So Rebecca for WA, and that's F-O-R, not the number four. Um, and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And my website's RebeccaForWA.com. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter, but I am on the other platforms. And also my DMs are open, so people okay. want to ask me questions. <laughs> She's on Twitter and her DMs are open. She's one, of, <laughs> she's one of us. She's an honorary reply guy forever. Thank you so much, Rebecca. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land, land is mine.